Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about how to keep your food fresh with the right storage with Professor Enzo Palombo, who is a Professor of Microbiology and Associate Dean Research at the School of Science, Computing and Engineering Technologies at Swinburne University. Hi, how are you? Afternoon, Gabrielle. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, So that we get to know you a little bit better, do you mind introducing yourself? Well, as you said, my name is Enzo Palombo. I'm a professor of microbiology at Swinburne University of Technology, and I have a leadership role in our school as what we refer to as the Associate Dean of Research. So in, in that role, I'm responsible for the research activities of staff and students, PhD students, industry partners, just to sort of coordinate and manage those relationships and make sure that we bring good outcomes from our research activities. Sounds good. Um, So we have a section that we call, Have You Met Enzo? And that's where we get to know you a little bit better through some of your favorite things or things you've uh, looked at recently. So um, what is your favorite book? I don't know if I have a favorite book per se. Um, I, I, I like to read in areas that align or have some link to to my work because I'm just a, a nerd at heart. Um, but there have some, been some really great books recently released that deal with areas of, of microbiology, but it's also sort of more, um, the say, for example, the response to the, the pandemic. And I'm, I'm waiting for the movie to come out, but there's also already some good books that have looked at that, that issue of how the society responded to, to the pandemic. And one in particular, which was really eye-opening, was a book called uh, The Premonition by um, Michael Lewis. And it was really a story around how America screwed up their response to the the (laughs) pandemic. And it sort of starts off with George W. Bush. So it goes back a couple of decades. And apparently he read something about the the 1918 flu pandemic, the great, what we call the great pandemic. And he got really, really concerned. And to his credit, he then established a group of, um, of advisors that would prepare the US for the, the next pandemic. Uh, that was the time, people who are old enough to remember, that, that the first SARS outbreak occurred in the early 2000s. So there's a lot of general concern around how we would, were we prepared for these, these events. So Bush established this, this um, group of, of, of experts. And then over the years, um, when Obama came into power and then eventually Trump came into power, it was pretty much disassembled. So when COVID hit, America was almost back to square one. No one knew what they'd, they'd, they'd written the rule book, but then threw it out. So that sort of it, it describes how America really failed to respond properly to the, to the pandemic. Um, that was an eye opener because I always thought you always think that the US has been ahead of the game. You know, the CDC, those sort of big organizations, but they just didn't do the, the job properly, which, as we know now, caused countless suffering and death in, in that community. That was one particular book that really caught my interest. Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. Um, I, I uh, yeah, I imagine that all of our governments. I mean, hope. What I always imagined was that they would have a plan for every situation. You know, yeah. experts for every outcome. And I guess we have seen that a lot of countries aren't prepared as or as prepared as we thought um, when it comes to things like pandemics. Um, and and yeah. it's, it's the the irony is that. Science has been warning about this for, for ages. I mean, from the time of that great pandemic in the, in the after the First World War, um, scientists pretty much said the next big flu pandemic is only one year away. And it's, it's happened. We've had countless outbreaks and pandemics of the flu over the last of the 20th century. But we're humans. We forget. 
you know, the crisis passes and we think we go back to normal activity. We don't think about the future. It sort of parallels what's happening in the climate change debate that you know, that's the next generation's problem. <laughs> but we need to deal with it now and be prepared for it now. Otherwise, when the catastrophe hits, we suddenly, what, what do we do? And we saw yes. a bit of that in Australia too. To our credit, we were much better organised, and I think that's because we have a, a federal government that worked well with the state government. In, in the US, it was all gov- um, state by state and, and region by region. So we did a pretty good job of, of, of sort of protecting our community from, from that particular um, incident. But yeah, we've learned lessons, hopefully, for next time. We'll see. Yes, hopefully. Um, and um, have you watched any movies recently that you enjoyed? Yeah, um, one which I, I did catch recently was the Elvis movie. Um, and I'm old enough to remember when Elvis died and all that stuff that happened in, in the 70s and the, you know, the conspiracies that he's still alive and that sort of stuff. But I, I was never really an Elvis fan, just sort of in passing knew, knew of him and, and knew his fame. Um, and I like Baz Luhrmann films. I think he does some you know, great work and go back to the Strictly Ballroom and those sort of classic <laughs> movies. Um, and I wasn't prepared for really the emotional part of that movie where he was a bit like Michael Jackson. You know, he was sort of a, a product of his own fame and, and, and infamy in some ways and was abused and used by his managers and made me feel a bit sort of sad about his life. So it really struck a chord, that, that movie, and it was beautifully presented and, and, and made. Mm. Yeah, I didn't really know much about Elvis uh, when I watched that. And I I mean, I'm sure movies um, exaggerate some things. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting and yeah, very sad story, I think. Um, exploited. Pet- he, was, he was exploited, basically. Mm. And, and yeah. that's sad when you think about such a, and a really a talented person. I think people forget how talented he was and the music he made. And, and it wasn't just a, a performer. He was a, a, a musician. Um, but yeah, his managers and others sort of didn't look after him, and that's, the result was what we saw in the in, in that movie. And I guess I hope that the people who are looking after these, um, you know, musicians have learned from this. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it happens in other forms of, of the arts of and course. life. You know, with you know, sporting people are probably the same. And um, we hear a lot about the abuse of young gymnasts, for example, by coaches and stuff. And you just think of that power imbalance in, in those relationships. And it, it is sad that you think he's a talented young man who was basically abused by his, his people who were meant to be looking after him. Mm, That's a sad yes. thing. Mm. Um, and do you listen to any podcasts? I do. And I must admit, I am also nerdy in that respect. Um, there's a couple of, of what we call um, skeptical community podcasts. And skeptics, is a, is a community of people who really just want to use scientific practices and, and um, scientific thought in, in bringing some sense to, to discussions around a whole broad range of, of issues. Um, the word skeptic sometimes means, or sometimes gets used as a, a person who's a, a doubter or always putting the cold water on a, on a particular topic. Um, but the real use of that word is people who want to um, apply scientific principles and practices to understanding a problem, whether that's something in, in, in health sciences or microbiology or climate change or astrophysics, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, and and I, the juxtaposition about people who have these, I won't say unusual <laughs> scientific thoughts, like you know, bringing back things like the flat earth theory, how we're meant mm. to have a flat earth and all those conspiracy theories and UFOs and that, that sort of stuff is all what those that community is trying to address and make sure that people understand the, the, the reality from the from the fact uh, from the fiction. So I listen to a few of those podcasts. Um, I listen to one that I really enjoy, which is the one that Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb um, put out. Called I think it's called Chat Ten. Chat Ten looks three. three. Yeah, just that, 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 just their 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 approach to to things like the arts and music and movies. Yeah, just. Again, they often spur things and then I want to go and see that movie or watch that series or whatever it might be. Yep. I also listen to that podcast. So yep, yep. quite a few things I have um, gotten from them, um, different TV shows yep. and books. Yep. <laughs> and um, they're also great to listen to because, of course, they've had media training as well. Of course. Of course. They're fantastic um, mm. communicators. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have a role model? Um. Not a specific role model. I was very fortunate in my 
developing years as a as a career scientist to have been, and it wasn't formally mentored, but certainly people who I worked with and worked for, yes, you know, my senior people, um, and I learned a lot about about the way we should behave as as scientists. Um, I mean, people have this impression that scientists are all above board and, and we do everything right correctly. We let the science speak for itself. But there are some pretty bad behaviours um, in, in, in scientific circles. And I've tried to keep a very um, yeah, um, um, an ethical approach to, to the way I, I do, my, do my science. And that was taught to me by my mentors, my, my PhD supervisor, my first postdoctoral supervisor and some of the colleagues I met when I first joined Swinburne. So they've taught me a lot about how to, how to behave and I think that's been a, a lifelong lesson. And I think it's a lot easier to, as you, you know, it's, it's a role model. It's to model your own yep. um, actions um, when you do have um, someone there who's also encouraging it and demonstrating how it's done. Yeah. And I think what that has allowed me to do then now that I've sort of got to more, more senior ranks in, in in academia, is behave in the way that I was taught to behave, mm. and and I think that is what our legacy we leave to our next generation of, of, of our our peers and our colleagues is that that behavioural side, and and it has come a long way from the time I was a young scientist and a young postdoc, and we go back to the, this discussion about how Elvis and others were being abused by their their, their managers, and we see that in science too. A lot of a lot of academics, I'm not going to name names or point fingers, um, tend to over overwork their staff and expect them to be almost robots in the way they do their their work. And you can't sustain that, um, you know, physically, mentally. You just can't sustain that. So I know that yes, this is an important job that we do, but there's life outside of this job. And when particularly students or young researchers have personal issues, um, they have to be prioritised. Yeah, the science can wait. The job can wait. It's the people that are important. If you if you destroy the people early, then it, no one no one wins. So respecting mm. individuals. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like sounds like you're becoming a great role model. I hope so. I hope so. And um, has there been a course that has inspired you? A course, well. I finished studying many years ago, so I don't recall that. But I certainly, in my formative years, remember going to some of my first international conferences, which in those days was not over Zoom or over these platforms. <laughs> it was actually flying to a country and, and going to a whole new, um, almost a whole new society. And one of my early conferences was uh, an international congress in Jerusalem. Uh, and it happened to be just as there was some um, terrorist activity that a plane had been, I think, came down in somewhere in the US. So it was a very tense time of of, of uh, the world. But I got to Jerusalem and I thought, this is just a wonderful place, and just feeling that spirituality almost about about that that particular area, whether you're religious or not. Just that history behind a place like that was just incredible. Um, and of course, I, I then got to meet scientists from around the world, and you see how the people behave and, and present and I learned so much from that particular meeting which I hope has led me to you know being able to do the same thing now that I'm going to meetings and conferences and presenting and so on. I think that yeah being able to actually go and meet people and go to different countries is such a great experience and such a privilege as well yeah, it is. Um, for us. It is. Um, and, and Australia is so far away that any opportunity to, to go and I mean the Europeans have their own scientific communities that North Americans do the same. They're, they're all in each other's back pockets. We tend to be a bit in, more in isolation and therefore being able to go to an international con conference as a young scientist was a really big opportunity. Um, and you don't, you never forget those experiences. In fact, um, small piece of trivia, I was in the air flying to the Ukraine for a conference on the September 11 day. We were wow. flying through Europe and got to our hotels in, in Kiev, put on the news and suddenly saw these planes crashing into buildings. Um, that was a pretty scary experience. That would be very scary. Um, I guess in some ways it was probably better than seeing the the, yes, the before, crashes before, and yeah. then getting on the plane. Yeah, correct, correct. But it was still it was quite confronting. You're, you're suddenly halfway around the world 
and this is a day in the days before we had really good communications. So trying to phone home to say to people, I'm okay, I'm no in New York or Washington, um, was a real traumatic experience. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think it's something that has become a little bit more prevalent yep. as well. Yep. yep. But glad you're okay. <laughs> it, was a, it, was, it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, so how would you define household management? Yeah, it's a it's a great term, isn't it? Um, from my own perspective, it's it's a, the way of making sure the the household runs um, optimally. Um, if that's simply to do with allowing time to do the various tasks and jobs and duties of ma- running a household, um, but also thinking about the the economics about running a household. And in my, in my particular field of, of, of activity in, in research, um, we have a lot of pay a lot of attention to things like food waste, which we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on in, in this discussion. But being able to manage the household, um, you got, got to feed people. You got to be able to bring things into the house, use them optimally, and minimise the the waste. So that that's one area which I'm very much in, on top of, and my wife and I very much plan those things essentially she plans I go out shopping and then we sort of um, do the do the cooking stuff together as much as we can but just being able to manage that that relationship with the outside world and the household um, I have a reasonably big garden at home so I'd like to get out and garden and make sure that it's not being overrun by weeds and so on so just keeping the house running when you've got two people who've got a full-time job and kids and so on is that that's what I sort of think of as being household management yeah, and do you think it's um, do you think it's important to manage the home well? I think the home is a bit like any other of our activities. We think about managing our workplace and our workspaces in, in an optimal way so that we can do our, our job properly, having all the resources available, um, and also being able to do that in an economically viable way, not wasting resources, not wasting money. We sort of think about that as, as a, um, a fundamental thing that we do at work, but mm-hmm. the same approach can be used at home where I suppose it's a, it's a much personal thing. And, and I know we're all tired, we've all got long, complex lives, but if you have that part of your life under control, it seems that everything else flows better. Uh, and I'm sure, I don't want to judge, but I'm sure most of us would come home after a long day and, and you see a, something messy in the house and you think, oh, I'll leave that till the weekend. But doing small things continually can help you sort of overcome the, the the big task. And I think that's with any any part of life's chip away small things and then you can sort of um, um, feel under control. Definitely. So you've mentioned um, that, um, yeah, purchasing food and cooking food and then food wastage as well. Yeah. So um, how, how do we store food correctly and um, what is food storage? It's a very simple question with a very complex answer. Um, foods are not one thing, and there's a whole range of foods from what we call the perishable foods right through to the ones that can be stored long-term without any any effect on, on their quality. Um, how you store a food is dependent on what's in the food and how it's been processed, how it's been prepared, how it's been handled. Um, we probably have two two or three main ways we, we store food in the regular household. One is room temperature, so in the cupboard, in the pantry, and the second is using refrigeration or, or freezing. And different foods require different treatments. You know, a, a canned food, for example, can last in the cupboard for, for months, if not years. Once you open that can, though, that food suddenly becomes um, vulnerable to contamination from what's in the air, what you touch, and so on. So then it has to be transferred and put into the fridge for, for short-term storage. Um, the classic example, again, is you know, UHT milk, ultra-high temperature, the milk you buy in, in the carton in the supermarket. It's prepared, it's stored at room temperature in, in the supermarket. You take it home, you can put it in, the, free, in, the, in the, the pantry. Once you open that milk, though, once you crack the seal, then it becomes like normal milk. It becomes perishable, so you must put it in the in the fridge for whatever time, maybe seven days and so on. So even though the food is the same thing, how it's been 
handled and and managed and stored is is different depending on its, its different properties. Um, I did a, a a short radio interview a few weeks back, and we had touched on this story about UHT milk, and the the presenter mentioned that someone in his family had the opinion that he could open up UHT milk, use it, and then put it back in the pantry. Oh no! And I said, no, no, don't do that, please. That's just ready for for an incident there. Um, so then you have the the wholly perishable foods, things like your dairy products, your, your meats, and those things, your be- fruit and veg, which need to be stored at um, cold temperatures. And the reason temperature is so important is because temperature affects the growth of microbes, which is where I, I come into the story. Um, and many microbes that can grow at those room temperature, sort of ambient temperature, are the ones that potentially can cause food poisoning. And therefore, those foods need to be stored in the fridge to stop those microbes from growing. If you then need to go further than that, like meats that might not be used immediately, those get put into the freezer. And the freezer essentially stops all microbial growth. And that way, the food becomes storable for much, much longer. doesn't mean it's there forever. And there are things that happen in the the freezer physically that can still damage the food. and the, the concepts about food is you have two types of things that happen microbiologically. One is what we tend to think of is the food poisoning stuff, you know, the, mm-hmm. the bad bugs that get in there and will give you a, 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 a bout of diarrhea. But there's also the spoilage bacteria or the spoilage fungi and those sort of things. That, and they don't necessarily cause any harm to you, but will make the food just not, not inedible because it, it spoils. So these... These practices are all designed to keep the food quality and the food safety at a, at a acceptable level, but nothing is forever. So you to be reassured. And sometimes, yeah, just using common sense. Yeah, you know, the, the sniff test sometimes gets called into into action, and and yeah, that can be a good guide as to whether the food is still um, safe to eat or consume. So you mentioned like the difference between food quality and food safety. Yeah. So. I never thought about them as being two separate things. I thought that if a food had mold on it, it was no longer safe to eat. Um, yes, that's true. That is, def- if you can see something on the food, then it's more than likely it's not going to be good in terms of quality or safe. Mm-hmm. However, some of the things that cause food poisoning or food infection to occur, you know, the classic ones like salmonella, listeria, some of those nasty bugs don't need to be there in high numbers to cause a problem. So the food may look fine, ah. but there's sufficient numbers of those bacteria on the food that can then, if you consume that food, can give you a, an infection. So you can't just use the quality as a, as a proxy for safety. Mm-hmm. Once the food's gone, and in fact, the food that's gone off doesn't necessarily have, mean it's bad for you, it just won't taste good, it might not be palatable but it might not be a, a safety issue. So the two are linked, but not always the same. I guess if food quality has gone down, then it's probably likely that food safety has also gone down? Likely, because the, the, the types of bacteria that cause problems, if you store something in the fridge and it starts to go off in the fridge, mm-hmm. that means that there's been microbial growth in that cold environment. Um, and some bacteria that do cause harm can still grow at refrigeration temperatures. And I mentioned listeria before, you may have heard of that one. That's the one that is often linked to things like soft cheeses or um, dairy products and you know, fermented meats and so on. That organism can grow even at refrigeration temperatures slowly, takes a lot longer than it would normally outside the fridge, but it can still grow under those conditions. So you need to be very careful about how you handle foods that perhaps could be contaminated by those listeria type bacteria. Okay, so other than keeping things in the fridge and freezer, um, what are some other ways that we can prevent um, microbes from contaminating food and growing on the food? My number one message is always about hygiene. Um, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not paranoid, but I'm, I'm careful, and, and my wife's also a microbiologist, so that means that we're double, doubly careful in in the in the kitchen. But just being aware of the the surroundings, um, what utensils you use, washing hands is is critical. I mean, we learned about this during the pandemic. You know, sanitizing, sanitizing. Everyone was doing all that ethanol, hand sanitizer, and so on. And I still practice that, even though 
you know, we believe the pandemic's gone. It hasn't, it's still around. But those practices that we learned about hand hygiene are equally applicable to other areas of, of food safety and, and health. Just because there's not much coronavirus in the in the community, there still is a lot of other stuff out there. So food, uh, hand hygiene is, is num- I tell my students, if you wash your hands regularly, um, you will have fewer colds, you will have fewer gastro type of things, and you will eliminate the, the chances of things like the, the food spoilage and, and food wastage. So, so yes, keeping, keeping a, being aware of your environment, both personal environment and how you work in the kitchen, things like not sharing um, chopping boards with food that isn't cooked, for example. So if, you, if, you, if, you use, if you're preparing a salad, um, you make sure you don't use the same chopping block and knife when you cut out the chicken to do your, to your stir fry. Those common sense things, um, washing your utensils commonly. If you see a spill on, on the bench, give it, a, give it a wipe. Don't let the, the organic matter sit there for a while because anything is, is, is possible. So just keeping a good, clean, hygienic environment is, is important. A question about chopping boards. So this has been, I've been told this, you know, growing up um, that you should have a separate chopping board for like meat and a separate chopping board for vegetables. Um, I have the opinion that as long as you wash everything between use, so obviously I'm not chopping my salad on the chicken board, but if I wash wash them, dry them and everything, it's okay. Is it okay for me to use them to- Yeah, generally, I, I tend to also like the, the, the strategy you use there is perhaps use the chopping block for the salad first, mm-hmm. and then because salad is, salads are normally processed further, they're just eaten as they're prepared, and then the more risky food like the chicken, you do it se- second, and then you you, know, you wash up later. Um, the uh, I mean chopping chopping boards are a, a, a bit of a, a risky thing because depending on the materials that they're made from. You know, the old wooden chopping boards can be quite porous and therefore can absorb things like juices from your, from your chicken. Um, some of the plastic ones can also be that sort of, yeah, think, thinking of that, that, that surface at a microscopic level, it's like a, yeah, Mount Everest for those bacteria. They get into little crevices and hide there. So yeah, washing them regularly, washing your knives regularly and other utensils regularly is a good practice in the kitchen for sure. So um, another question that I have about the fr- fridge. Um, do we need to put everything into like boxes to keep them um, safe and to stop spoilage, or if it's in the fridge, or is it safe? Yeah, there are sort of guidelines around how you store things in the fridge to stop the cross contamination, particularly around you know meats and vegetables. Um, yeah, you know, we have vegetable drawers, that's so that's good, but typically people recommend that you put your meats at the lowest part of the fridge because there's any leakage of juices that won't get into the other materials in the fridge. And certainly using storage boxes is a good idea or Ziploc bags and those sort of things. Um, again, just that, that minimize the cross-contamination. It's also probably, and I'm not an expert, this is more of a chemistry issue, but if you've got um, volatile chemicals between different foods that can get into the other foods and might sort of alter the, the taste and the sensory um, properties of the food. So keeping them sealed is, is really, uh, a good reason for that too. Oh, never heard of that. That sounds interesting. I'll have to find a chemist to ask yes, about yes, that. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Volatile, the things that you smell, the, the aromas and so on, they can permeate throughout the, the, the fridge environment and can be absorbed by other types of food. Ah. Actually, I've noticed that if I put a banana yeah. with a sandwich in my lunchbox, everything tastes like banana. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind bananas. That's, not, that's all right. Yeah, but it, yeah, those volatile compounds <laughs> that the foods emit all the time can be absorbed by either the packaging or the other materials in the, in the containers. Actually, another question I had about cross-contamination is when I was growing up, my mum was always very um, particular about us putting, sharing knives between different condiments. Okay. Um, so she would, if we put the jam, the butter knife in the jam, she was like, don't do that. You've got to use a new knife for each thing. Um, is that something that's worth practicing? Uh, that's probably more of a, a sensory thing. You, know, you, don't, you don't want your jam to have bits of butter floating around in it or your butter container having Vegemite black smears all over it. <laughs> okay. like, I don't think there's any, any sort of harm in doing that, but yeah, just keeping things separate. Um, having said that, and you, you raised the issue of shared utensils and, and, and knives and so on, um, there's been 
some interesting studies around the spread of certain types of bacteria, one that we call Campylobacter. I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's one that commonly found in, in chickens and other poultry, and it's probably the most common cause of um, gastroenteritis in, in, in food. Um, it's been shown that in some community behaviours, so in many, say, Asian cultures where you have a, a central pot of food and people you know, will then spoon it into their or serve it into their own um, bowls and so on, there's been some studies that have shown that that bacteria tends to spread more easily around, so, sorry, not Campylobacter, Heligobacter, the wrong organism, Heligobacter, the one that causes um, stomach ulcers. And that one has been shown to spread through this type of practice more commonly in cultures where there's a common source of the food and everyone helps themselves because you're using the same utensil or the same um, source of the, of, of the potential bacterial pathogen. So your helicobacter is the one that causes um, stomach ulcers. Mm. I, I get my bacteria confused sometimes. That's okay. I, they've got such complex names. Um, I can understand why. I mean, I don't. I, I wouldn't be um, confident telling you what the name of that bacteria <laughs> was back now. Oh, we should you. know that. That's the famous one because it was discovered the, as the cause of stomach ulcers by Australian microbiologist. Oh, interesting. This is a goes back to some scientists out of um, in Western Australia. And at the time, this is back in the late 90s, that sort of time, um, the, the, the wisdom was that stomach ulcers, peptic ulcers were caused by you know, eating too many hot foods or smoking too much or stress. And then these, these um, scientists from, or clinicians from Western Australia decided to test the theory or test the, the idea that it wasn't caused by these physical things was caused by an infection. And one of them, um, Barry Marshall, who's the name, he, he grew this bacterium that had been found in, in association with these stomach ulcers, and he drank a culture of the bacteria. And oh, he developed, no. he developed stomach ulcers. Um, his wife wasn't too impressed, apparently. <laughs> but it proved, yeah. it proved that the bacteria caused the ulcers, not other lifestyle factors. He then took a course of antibiotics and cured the infection and cured the ulcers. And that was a huge breakthrough because before that, people would get surgical intervention to cut out the ulcers in, in the stomach. It was it was traumatic type of surgery. But by showing a course of antibiotics would cure the ulcers was a major medical breakthrough. And they won the Nobel Prize for that. Surely it'd be easier if, if you're considering you know, surgery, and it's like, oh, maybe we'll just do some antibiotics just to see if it helps. Surely that's easier, just for like a week or two. I think that I'm I'm not an expert in this area, but I think the medical community is quite conservative. Okay. So if you, if you tell them, change your whole approach to treating a disease or a condition, it'll take a lot of convincing to do it. Even Even after these um, scientists showed that the link between the bacteria and the ulcer was, was unequivocal, it was only after the Americans repeated the experiment and showed it to be true that they believed the Australians. So now it's been, it's now changed the whole way we deal about, we deal with peptic ulcers. But you're right, it's, it's, it seems logical to try something like that, but it's a very conservative type of um, professional. Okay, so I'll, um, I'll keep that in mind, I guess, if I need any life-changing things, <laughs> <laughs> medical interventions. Yep. Um, so, do you have like recommendations for different types of packaging that we should use for different types of products? I think, oh, again, it's, this is probably more of a chemistry question because it's all okay. to do with how materials interact with, with, with um, other compounds. Um, I suppose I'm a, I'm a traditionalist, you know, glass, ceramics probably are the best way to do things. Um, plastic containers, of course, are convenient, probably cheaper and, and safer. But some of the times the plastics can absorb the materials. Um, and then when it comes to reheating the food, for example, some recommendations are not to use plastic receptacles in the microwave because some of the plastic could leach into the, the food, whereas glass is a much um, much safer type of um, material. But yeah, I, I look, I, think I, I use all the above, you know, plastic bags, um, whatever, whatever the case. But again, making sure things are sealed, making sure there's no 
Things dry out in the fridge too, so you lose moisture. That's the other issue. So making sure you've got good containers that seal properly and so on. And um, so you mentioned as well that there's not just it's not just um, the fridge where we store items. We also store items in the pantry. Um, and, you know, so I'm thinking things like rice, flour. You also mentioned canned goods. So obviously canned goods, they come in a can. That's pretty easy to store. But something like a bag of rice, once you open it, do you need to keep it sealed in a box or is it in the plastic ba- in the plastic um, bag it came in? Is that okay? Again, just from my own personal practice, that's what we do in the household. You open the container, um, use those you know, little clips or something, just seal the, the opening mm-hmm. and that should last for, for a while. Okay. I think, again, making sure you don't get in those types of foods, moisture getting into the food is a problem. So your rice grains will get mushy if they're not sealed properly or contained properly. But when it comes to, and, and maybe this is a question down the track, but it just you prompted me to think to, to mention this. When we think about storage of things at ambient temperature, like their pantry, there's a real misunderstanding about things like used by dates and best before dates, which is one of the one of the reasons why we probably have such a large food waste issue in this country or even globally. And in fact, in some jurisdictions like in the UK, they've now had a, um, they want to remove these dates or at least the best before dates because it confuses the, the consumer, the customer. A best before date, and it goes back to the, the comments earlier about safety versus quality. So a, a best before date is really an issue around food quality. That food will still be safe to consume after the best before date and could be mm-hmm. weeks, months even after the best before date. But what the the package is telling you is that this food is guaranteed to be at its optimum quality up to that date. Mm-hmm. Past that date, it might not be the best, but it's still safe to consume. So, and my mum does this all the time, she goes to me, there's a date on this can, should I throw it out now? No, don't throw it out. The can is fine. The food, if it hasn't been opened, it should be fine. And we, we've discovered cans that were packaged you know, decades ago. If you open this, they're still fine. They're safe to eat. They may, quality may have been a bit of an issue, but overall, they're still, they're still fine. Now, a used-by date, though, is a very different situation. A used-by date is mandatory. It's a regulatory requirement for foods that have a, a, a safety issue after that date. And typically, you, you find on your, yeah, on your milk carton or milk bottle, things that are perishable, things that after a certain date then become risky to consume. Again, just because the clock ticks over at midnight, on that date, doesn't mean the food suddenly goes off and, 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 and explodes, but it's just giving the consumer a guide as to, well, after that date, it may be risky to consume that food, so you might want to discard it. But the, use, the best before date is more of a quality issue. Okay. If we, if we understood that more, I think there'd be less food thrown out. Yes. So is, is food wastage a large problem? Huge. In this country, across the world, yes, um, food waste is one of the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases. Now, if, if food waste was considered a country, it would be third behind the US and China as in terms of greenhouse emissions. Wow. Because most of our food ends up going to landfill. Now, once it gets dumped into landfill, um, landfill becomes an environment where certain types of microbes grow, and these microbes produce methane. As you know, we breathe out carbon dioxide, these microbes breathe out methane. Now, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Methane is an even more noxious greenhouse gas. So if you look at greenhouse gas emissions by industry, food waste is is huge. Now, in Australia, the numbers are something like we have uh, $20 billion of food waste per year, and about half of that is at the consumer end. Uh-huh. But the consumers are not doing a great job of minimizing food waste. So some of these practices we talked about, yeah, storage food correctly, used by dates and all those sort of best before dates, all go towards the consumer being more aware of things and therefore being in a stronger position to to mitigate the food waste. Okay, thank you. Um, and you mentioned used before dates, so or best before. Um, so, sorry, best, best before dates. Mm. So if I have something um, that has a best before date. Should I just, and it's, I don't know, a month expired. Should I just eat it? Again, common sense. If you've, there's, a, there's an old saying, we use it in the lab, we use it in practice. 
if in doubt, throw it out. And that's what mm -hmm. people often say. Um, it's not cut and dry, of course. In the lab, we, we refer to, if you've made a mistake somewhere in a procedure and you're not sure, throw it out, start again. Don't continue because you'll, you'll get bad outcomes. In in the household, in terms of food, it, it's, it's a common sense approach. If you have any suspicion of the food may have been um, mishandled or something in the past, then of course be be, be cautious. Um, don't be don't be a hero. Um, cans in particular, if you see a can which has been distorted in some way, particularly if it's been if the can starts to bulge, a dent in the can is probably someone's dropped it or something. If it's if it's bulging, it means something's grown inside, it's making gases, and those gases are pushing out on the can, and those types of bacteria can lead to things like botulism, which is a very, very serious disease that can, uh, that can kill you. So yeah, if you have any doubts about it, if you, if you open a can and you hear a fizz in something that shouldn't be fizzy, <laughs> it means there's gas inside that's grown because of oh, produced by bacteria that grow in those conditions. So yeah, be, be a, what's, what's the old adage? Be aware, not, not alarmed. You know, just, just, just be aware of the, common sense is the, what we normally practice in this, in this area. Okay. Um, glad to know that all the cans I've eaten that have dents in them are fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, dents are fine. It's, it's, it's when they when they bulge, it's more of an issue. Mm. Okay, good. Um, any other tips or um, things you'd like to let the audience know? Enjoy food. I think we we, we get a bit paranoid about thinking, oh, is it safe? Is it whatever. Particularly when we eat out, um, you know, I think a lot of the restaurants have stopped giving out doggy bags or you know take home the rest of your meal. Um, <laughs> I, I I love leftovers. I think leftovers are, are the gift that keeps on giving. You, know, you make a big batch of something, and you know it's there for the rest of the week. Uh, you might freeze a portion of it away, and you've got instant meal when you when you need it. So keep keep sort of thinking about not just for now, but in in tomorrow and the next. Few days, particularly. I know we're all we're all busy. We've got other things happening in our lives. Coming home to a to leftover pizza is one of my joys, you know. <laughs> but within reason, you don't do it after a week. And mm -hmm. I often get asked about, particularly at Christmas time, Christmas leftovers. How long can you leave the ham in the fridge? Mm -hmm. Now, if the ham starts walking away by itself, it's probably not a good idea. But yeah, a couple of days, two to three days, fine. Those sort of things. And and leftovers are a real issue in some household. Some people don't want to, they, you don't finish your meal, you throw it out. I think that's criminal because you've invested time, money, effort into making something. Um, be, be smart about it. There's a, a sort of a, a rule of thumb that we use in, in food safety. It's called, and it's used also in, in, in industry and restaurants. It's referred to as the two hour, four hour rule. Now, I don't know if you've heard of that before. Vaguely, but um, I have terrible memory, so okay. please elaborate. Okay. Two hours and four hours are sort of critical time points in, in food safety. It's really it relates around food that should be refrigerated. Now, if that food's been out for a period of up to two hours, it's safe to put back in the fridge. Now, that two hours is not always in one go. It could be multiple events where it's coming out of the fridge. So you take something out for t 10 minutes, put it back in. Take it out half an hour, put it back in. After it accumulates for two hours, that's when it starts to get to a point where you think, mm, now that we need to be a bit more circumspect. So between two hours and four hours, it should be consumed then and the remainder thrown away because it could start to become risky. And after four hours, certainly that's the risky thing. So if you've been sitting at your, and it happens at you know, Christmas, you have a big meal, everyone sit around the table, it's summertime in Australia, and food's been out for, you know, the prawns have been out for four hours or more, probably a bit risky to, to consume those. So keeping that two-hour, four-hour window front of mind can help you minimize food waste and, and stay safe. The same way restaurants will operate. So, so something that um, I've seen other people do is they, when they have leftovers, like a big pot of soup or something, they don't immediately put it in the fridge. They say that that will increase the, I don't know, the bacteria in there. So they leave it on the bench to cool down first. No. Is no, that right? No. Um, Modern fridge, fridges are pretty, pretty good. Now, uh, my again, just a general rule that I use, if you can pick up the pot in your hands, it's cool enough to put in the fridge. It doesn't have to go right down to room temperature. 
as long as you can handle it safely or without burning yourself, it's safe. Don't put it don't put it straight from the from the cooktop or the oven into your fridge. But once it's been on the bench for a, a period and you can pick it up, it's safe to put in the fridge. The better option though is to divide it up into smaller portions. And the reason that's important is because your big casserole dish has a lot of mass. The heat is going to be containing that mass for a long time. You put it in the fridge, it'll take a long time for the air to penetrate to the center of that till it all becomes cool. If you put it in small portions and divide it up into small containers, it'll get cooler quicker. And there's that danger period of, of temperature between, say, 10 degrees and around 37 degrees where these microbes of concern can grow. So if you have your food out at that temperature range for too long, then the food can become an issue. So putting it away quickly, or as soon as possible, mm-hmm. and or dividing it up into small portions are sort of the recommendations that, that are given by most food um, safety experts. Okay, I will um, tell those people that they should just put it back in the fridge yep. and not leave it out. And the reason why we don't, uh, and again, it, goes, it's, it's, it becomes complicated because it's, there's not just one cause of food poisoning. There are many things that cause food poisoning. Some of the microbes that cause food poisoning and I'm not, I don't know how complicated you want me to get into, into the microbiology, but some microbes produce chemicals referred to as to- toxins, and these are, are poisons, essentially. They're chemicals that they produce. If we ingest them, they have effects on our gut, can cause diarrhea, can cause vomiting, whatever it might be. Some of those toxins produced by certain of these bacteria can survive heating. So if uh-huh. you've got your pot of beef stew, whatever it is, out on the bench, and you've opened the lid, taken some in, and put the rest on the bench for later. If you've contaminated that food with, say, your hands, and you've got some of these bacteria transferred to the food, while it's sitting in a nice warm environment, those bacteria will grow. And they grow, and they grow, and they produce these toxins in the food. Now, you say, I'll put it away in the fridge, come back tomorrow, put it in the microwave, zap it, heat it up, no problems. But some of those toxins are heat stable. They can survive reheating temperatures. So even though you kill the bacteria, their toxins remain active. So you can eat that food subsequently and still get, still get sick. So keeping foods out on a warm bench for a long time is a no-no. should be refrigerated as soon as possible. Okay, even if you intend to heat it up afterwards. Correct, because you're not sure okay. what... And these things I'm talking about, these bacteria... Many of these are found on our skin. So you can touch the food by accident, of course, and you contaminate the food. Then the food's in a nice warm environment, the bacteria grow, they make the toxins. You can zap it later, but you can still get sick. Just be just okay. be wary. And certain foods, particularly potato, rice, those starchy foods are the vulnerable ones in this context. Meat products too, for example. Yeah, I never think of something like a potato to be to be a dangerous item. I understand meat, mm. cheeses, they seem dangerous to me. Yep. But potato? Yeah, potato salads are, are often the cause of food poisoning. Also linked to that is not just the potato, but also the dressings we use, you know, mayonnaise and so on. They're also lovely environments for bacteria to grow. Um, yes. Rice is another one. Rice can be contaminated by a certain type of organism that's found in the soil commonly and it's part of our normal environment. And again, that can cause vomiting and diarrhea and other gastro symptoms later on. So mm-hmm. yeah, it goes back to that first discussion about hygiene, just keeping things yep. clean as much as possible. Yeah. Yes. So what's a practice that you do in your own home to you know manage the cooking and the food? Planning is really key. Um, I mentioned earlier how food waste is such a big issue. You, know, you go to the supermarket, you buy more than you need, you bring it home, and, come back a week later just sit in the back of the fridge and it's all gone off so planning your meals is is a really good idea so you know what ingredients to use what to buy um some of those and I've, I'm, I'm not promoting them i've never used them but some of those companies that provide you know deliveries at home with with pre pre-portioned ingredients for making the right amount for the right amount of people i think they're a good i mean they might be expensive but, but in terms of minimizing food waste it seems like a pretty good way to go because you are only buying or cooking what you need for the purposes of the number of people in the household. Um, I know that they say never go to the supermarket hungry because you end up buying more stuff than you, <laughs> than you need. But yeah, planning is, is essential. A lot of the food um, 
the food authorities, the food advice, um, people will say that's a, a very important thing to do. So how do you do this practice? Do you sit down once a week and just yeah, make yeah. a list? Yeah, in our household, it's sort of like one major shop for the week and then just picking things up as we need to during the week if, if like supplementing, like you know, bread doesn't last the whole week, you might have to buy extra milk and so on. But so, so the planning of your meals is 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 what we do at home. Um, I, I must give credit to my wife who does most of that. I then go off and do the shopping, given the list and so on. So it's sort of a, a team effort. Um, but yeah, thinking about what, and you might have a week where you're eating out a lot that week. You know, don't buy a lot of food because you're not going to need it. Or if the kids aren't going to school, they won't need school lunches. You know, just planning ahead so you, you don't have all this excess stuff, which is then, I mean, Australia apparently produces enough food to feed 60 million people. Wow. We're, we're that's never, we have a population of 25 million people. Where's all that food going? So we're obviously growing and producing to excess. A lot. Yeah, sure. A lot of it's exported, of course, but yeah, a lot of it is just not not used, and it's not the consumer's fault only. I'm, I'm sort of having to go with the consumer here, but even supermarkets have policies. Yeah, apparently there's a there's a policy for what a banana should be in terms of the shape. Oh, that's Super, ridiculous. Supermarkets have a standard banana. If the banana is out of that shape, it'll be discarded. Now I know they're changing the attitudes, and you know Jamie Oliver has this this sort of concept of food doesn't have to always look the best to to be nutritious and fine. But yeah, supermarkets have standards around what a banana should look like. If you're a banana producer and your crop happens to have the wrong bend in it, they'll they'll reject it. Now yeah, that's just criminal. I mean, of course you can repurpose it for other things, you know, smoothies or or, or other products. But to think that we we have to have an idea of what, what a food looks like. Um, and a blemish on a food, I mean, if you have an apple with a bit of a brown spot, I cut the brown spot off and eat the rest. What's the, what's the problem? I was, I was taught that as a child. It's just, and, and it's a good practice. We don't want to waste the whole thing just because there's one little blemish there. So the idea of perfect food, I think, is um, maybe it's a privileged Western idea of food because we can, <laughs> we can choose. Mm-hmm. Um, other other people aren't as aren't as fortunate in that context. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's hard to give them. Well, I mean, should they have our discarding our discarded food anyway? No, I no, think we no, should no. just. No, no, not dis- <laughs> but we should change our attitude. Exactly. It, yeah. Not, we we have this idea that it's perfection, but food isn't. Food is a natural product. It's not perfect. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have this concept or this ideal that in Australia, for example, we expect food to be available year round. All the time, and I was growing up. We had watermelon in summer. That's when you had watermelon. Now you get it throughout the year in in every supermarket. Now, think about that. Where's this food coming from? The 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 footprint, the carbon footprint of having that food shipped in from interstate or overseas, wherever it might be, to get onto your supermarket shelf. So you have the privilege of eating these things all the time, all year round. I think again, it's it's a it's an expectation that I think we've 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 gone too far one way. Um, I, I mean, I I love the fact that we have seasonal fruit. I love that we mm. have just come out of the the stone fruit season, and, and yeah, you, know, you look forward to it. You think um, summer's coming. I'm going to get the nectarines and the peaches and so on. Um, why do we have to think we're going to get that all year round? I think, I think it spoils the excitement about food. I know, and I also find so I also get really excited for nectarine season, peach season, uh, because that's when the food is the best. Yeah. Uh, I, I've i tried to eat nectarines when they're, uh, it's not the season and yeah. I just, I'm never satisfied by them. They're, no. always, they're always a bit sour and a bit hard. And apples the same. You know, we have every variety of apple on the, on the shelf every year uh, or within reason, but apples are seasonal. Uh, there'll be the time when, the, you know, the, whatever variety is the one that you eat because that's the one that's available. Whereas we always want choice. We want... Um, everything to be available all the time. So that's, I think, an expectation of, of modern of modern science, uh, modern consumerism. Yeah. Um, I did read a book, and back to our discussion about books a few years ago, it's called Affluenza. Have you ever heard of that book? Um, Vaguely, but let, tell me about it. The, the term is a, a, what's a portmanteau between affluence and influenza. Like a, mm-hmm. it's a disease of affluence. And mm-hmm. it, it sort of highlights the fact that in our, in our Western world, how much consumerism plays a role in everything that we do. We're, yeah, we're, 
we're forced to buy the latest gadget. We're forced to buy the latest fashion. We're forced to buy the latest whiz bang thing because it's, it's the trend. Whereas, and and what struck me from this book, if you get a chance to read it, it's fantastic. Um, it showed a picture of a typical American household in their you know McMansion type of household, and they took out all their belongings and put it on the on the front drive, and it went all the way from the front drive onto the street. There was a huge amount of material. They then showed an African family in a hut, and they showed all their belongings, and they took them outside. There was one cooking pot, one this, one that. They only had the bare essentials to sustain their lifestyle, whereas we go all the way to excess. And I think food is a bit like that now. Um, we've got we've grown accustomed to having everything available all the time, and it breeds yeah. this whole, whole idea of more and more and more. So uh, we also have a section which we call the open mic. Um, so that's where you can talk about something that you're passionate about <laughs> that's not necessarily related to the topic. So did you have a thought for this? Uh, yeah, again, it was, goes back to my, my, my nerdiness. And I, I really, you know, when we were going through the, the pandemic, and I know I had to bring the science back into it, but microbiology is central to everything we do in this world, is what I believe. That's just my, my little joke there. Um, but when we think about the way we behaved and the way we didn't learn um, or, or you know, it goes back to experience I had with, with a, a close family friend. In the early stages of the, of the pandemic, I happened to catch up with this, this friend and they were giving me sort of the, the, all the conspiracy stuff that was happening in the background and asked me for my scientific opinion about all this stuff. And I gave my honest opinion. I mean, I, it was all new, so it, it, I couldn't give a, uh, an absolute um, opinion. But it just showed me how people want to believe what they believe and won't be convinced otherwise, even though we learn so much. And, and I always go back to, well, hang on, if you, d- you deny the science, but then science is what got us out of this problem in the first place. And we were able to quickly make vaccines, we were quickly able to discover so much about this new thing that was causing global pandemonium, and it was more because science. But yet you want to deny the science when it's convenient to you. Um, so I, I, I get really annoyed when when people who aren't experts think they're experts. And it comes back, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an expert in everything. I'm, I know a lot about things, I know a lot more about some things. But there are areas that I just say, I'm not the expert. Go and talk to a you know, climate change. Go and talk to, to a geophysicist. It's not my area. Mm-hmm. But people who aren't scientists who think they know more than the scientists, that really annoys me. And, and, and that came a lot, through a lot during, during the pandemic. Um, and some of the, some of the behaviours that were, that were seen in the community, things like you know, the face mask, the hand sanitizers, how quickly we forgot about that, how quickly we've now taken off the face mask, stop sanitizing and and think that we're, we're, we're all past this. And it, it does concern me. I think that we're only, we, we, we behave in a crisis in a certain way. The crisis goes and suddenly we all think it's back to normal. Um, so I hope we don't lose the learnings that we, we gain from this experience and we there's some benefit to, to society. I noticed this sort of last year um, where we were in Australia, we were out of the, we were out of the pandemic in quotation marks because we weren't really, we're still not. But um, people stopped sanitizing, they stopped social distancing, they stopped wearing masks. And all of a sudden the cold rates, the flu rates skyrocketed. We had a terrible, terrible year because um, we no longer knew how to look after ourselves. And I think the previous year, we had record lows because um, we were practicing all the important hygiene things. And I guess even if, um, you know, COVID isn't the thing that's making us sick, there's lots of other things that can make us sick. That's right. No, no, you're spot on, spot on. And mm. and if you look at the epidemiology of other respiratory infections during the pandemic, basically flu was wiped out for two years. There was no flu. One interesting thing though, I saw some of the government reports around syphilis and gonorrhea, those, uh-huh. rates, those rates stayed the same through pandemic, through lockdowns. Interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> different, different way of transmission, so obviously it wasn't. Yes, but, yeah, not as so effective. We knocked out all those, those respiratory things for a 
for two years. And then, as you said, as soon as we, we drop our guard, bang, we're, we're back into it. Um, I don't, again, I don't, I don't want people to feel paranoid about these things, but just cautious because it's the vulnerable people. You know, I have, I have an elderly mother. Um, you know, I have people who have young children. More and more people are you know, compromised in our community now with certain in, in conditions, whether it's you know, lupus or other conditions or they're on chemotherapy. These people are vulnerable. Um, aged care homes, as, as we know, went through hell during the, the early stages of the pandemic. So it's not about us, it's about feeling that we're doing it for the community. But we go back into our own ways of life and back to, it's all about me, it's all about me. So yeah, I, I, I sense that there's, we haven't learned, this <laughs> is the, the, bottom, the bottom line. Oh, well. Um... Hopefully we'll remember in time for the next one. Yeah, as I said, I'm only for the movie to come out and when we can, yeah, there's, there's some really great um, pandemic movies that, that came mm -hmm. out in recent times. What was the one called Contagion? I think it was a good one. Yes, I watched that. Yeah, great. Re really good science. I mean, I, I sometimes laugh at some of the other science movies and you think that, um, but that one really had some really good must have been good people advising the the producers and the directors because it was it was based on sound solid science yeah yes i remember watching that after sars and i was very yep um i mean i didn't know much about sars because i was a kid but i was like this seems right this seems realistic yeah yeah, yeah. That, that transmission okay. between humans and animals and I mean, we haven't touched on animals We've sort of mentioned animals more as a source of, of food but the link between um, humans, the environment, and animals. We're now understanding we're, we're we're one ecosystem. You can't think that you do something to one part of that and not affect the other parts. Um, there's a there's another book I read recently from David Attenborough called um, A Life on One Planet or something like that. It's all he's it's his it's his journey from being a very young boy to where he is now, and it documents the changes he's seen in the world. And each chapter starts with um, population at this stage of my life of the world, and the, um, the the carbon number parts per billion in the atmosphere. And oh, both wow. those numbers are sort of going up. In his lifetime, he's seen changes that are so dramatic to the environment through his documentary making and those sort of things. So he's he's seen it in his own lifetime the changes that have occurred in parts of the world that he visited as a young man to what he sees now. And his, his basic premise is we are one ecosystem. We're an enclosed system. What you do to one part affects the other parts. And therefore, we've got to treat everything with, with care because if we, if we you know, the, the old idea of the tipping point, if you get past that tipping point, then the whole ecosystem falls apart. And that's, that's critical. Yeah, I think that... Um yeah, you know, you take too much of one thing from one area and then it means that someone else isn't going to have something or um, they they will be affected by it. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like building a sandcastle in some ways. Yep. Yep. You take too much soil and then it's going to collapse. You need the right mm -hmm. mix of soil and water. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing that is striking from these these studies about, you know, we, we think about diversity. We talk about diversity. I know diversity has a certain so, so, social, um, but in... in, in the natural environment diversity is just as important because it's what it's it what it's what builds the ecosystem you can't have dominant and humans now become the dominant species in pretty much every ecosystem and that's yeah. caused um such a dysfunctional natural environment you need that balance and again what what you do to one creature affects so many down downstream that you have to have that balance and that diversity in everything that we do you know in our diet in our lifestyle in our natural environment. And that's what Adam Burroughs sort of talks about. We got to, we have to rewild the world, he calls it, this term he uses. Got to go back to the wild way the world was before modern society. Not yeah, not, not totally, of course, but you know, we're, we're burning the Amazon forest. That's a disaster. Um, we're burning, we, we do a lot of work with our colleagues in Malaysia. We have a campus in, in Malaysia, in Borneo. And they're right on the on the edge of the of the, the Borneo rainforest, one of the biggest areas of natural diversity in the world, and we're clearing all that forest to grow palm trees for palm oil. You know, this is this is stuff which is going to come back to bite us in a big way. It already has, mm. 
yeah the sustainability having a, a balanced ecosystem with a diverse both in terms of plant life animal life is, is critical yes definitely um so if our listeners want to find out more about you and um your work where can they find you oh they can go to the swinburne university website and just type in my name and my my profile comes up there and they can see what sort of research i do and other facts and figures and so on so great I mean, easily easily discoverable Yes, good. And um, just to make it even easier for our listeners, we'll put them in the show notes yep. um, so they can they can find you. Great. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I've learned so much from this um, and I'm going to be putting my leftovers in the fridge immediately from now on. <laughs> good to hear. Thanks, Gabrielle. Thank you. You've been listening to On The House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.